Hi, this is Tom Johnson, and you're listening to I'dRatherBeWriting.com. This is a post in my Simplifying Complexity series I'm going to be reading today. The post is called Articulating the Invisible Stories that Influence Product Adoption or Rejection. And uh, just to give you a, a basic overview of the principle I'm talking about, it's as follows. In any documentation scenario, there are usually at least two competing stories, the company's story about their product and the user's story. And these two stories don't always align. For a product or feature to be successful, the overall story about the product needs to align with a user story. These stories aren't always so apparent and learning to see them constitutes a complex task since you often have to reduce a sea of action and noise down to its essence. The misalignment of these stories often explains why products fail. Okay, so that's the larger overview principle that I'm explaining. And now let's dive into the, de the details. Many technical writers focus only on the immediate technical task before them, and they fail to grasp the larger trajectories uh, that are going on in their, in their scope. Some technical writers might think that these larger trajectories are simply beyond their concerns. They might say, hey, my task is to describe how this widget works. It's the product marketing team's job to actually get people to use it. And admittedly, I don't always exclude myself from this camp. One has to draw boundaries somewhere. For example, I might say to myself, I didn't design this widget. Why should I care if it fails? It's not my brainchild. My role is simply to describe how the thing works, to produce documentation for it. My only experience is, is within those using the widget's documentation. However, I think this mindset gets us into trouble. The reason we write documentation is not to produce a document. It's to put into action what the document describes. Robert Johnson, a professor of writing, explains that when the Greeks, in classic times, when they proposed theories about the craft or the making of things, which they called techne, the craftsmen didn't merely have the product as the end goal, but rather the thing for which the product was intended. Johnson explains, quote, techne and the arts of making have two ends, telos. The initial thing, or the initial end is the thing being produced, the product, Beyond the product, however, is the use or uses for the product. Uh, Johnson then draws upon Janice Lauer and Janet Atwill's explanation of telos or end purpose and design. Quote, the end of an art is not a product, but the use made of an artistic construct. The end of the house building, for example, is neither the builder's use of the art nor the house itself but rather the use made of the house by those for whom it was constructed thus products of human making are essentially inert until they are placed into use end quote johnson also draws upon john wilde interpreting aristotle to explain that a concern for the effects of craft 
is what separates the technician from the artist. Quote, A man may know all the rules of a certain art, but if he does not know when and where to apply them, the effects will be of no real use. He will then be a technician rather than a true artist, for he knows only the conditions of the art, not the art itself. The specific end of the art is its work, and this is always something good or useful for some end. end quote. Johnson's goal in citing these scholars is to debunk the idea that craft knowledge, quote, you know, craft knowledge is an oxymoron. Or in other words, he's arguing that craftsmen are in fact operating with strategic knowledge. For example, house builders, they're not just nailing wood together to build a house for the sake of having a house. Effective house builders perceive the end of their craft as creating livable spaces for families to comfortably dwell or something. Uh, if that end goal guides your action, then you're a true artist. But if you're just focusing on lining up two by fours, then you're basically a technician. In the same light, if as a technical writer, your only goal is to document a widget, then at the end of the day, if you've created a widget document, your goal is met, right? Well, few of us, I think, would accept that. Um, the goal was never really to produce a widget document, a widget documentation. The goal was to influence users to successfully create and install widgets. So unless we're content with merely the technical aspects of writing, we have to acknowledge that we care about the ends of our craft, the telos. Translating this conversation to the techcom workplace, uh, you've probably heard about uh, contrasting job titles between technical writer and content strategist. Um, in, in the minds of many, a technical writer is somebody who merely creates widget documentation, and the content strategist, on the other hand, brings about the implementation and installation of widgets in user systems or something. Now, I'm not planning to get into a discussion about job titles. Like Johnson, the person I quoted earlier, I think that writing involves strategy. It involves knowledge. Uh, the real work you do in writing isn't just making a page or screen with words and sentences, like nailing together two-by-fours. Uh, you're really trying to influence the actions that users take around these words. And if you aren't... The overall point is this, if you aren't concerned with how your words are going to influence users, then you're basically a technician. But if you are concerned about the end effects and how it gets used, then you're a true artist. Now, if we want to include this consideration of the end goal or telos in our craft, we have to assess whether we're successful in achieving our end goals. Presumably, the end of most software documentation is to increase the use and adoption of the software product. We want users to implement a system they've acquired, to set it up, run it, implement it, whatever. Uh, not just having documentation for doing it. So the question we should be asking is not just merely, you know, is my documentation clear and easy to follow? The larger questions are, 
why aren't more people using and following my documentation to adopt the product? Why is it that why is it that so few people are crossing the finish line with this product? And the answer to these questions takes us into additional territory that gets a lot more interesting. We start to veer into the terrain of these invisible stories that shape action and potential gaps between product stories and user stories. I think these gaps are what motivates or demotivates product adoption. They're, they're what persuade or dissuade users to take action. Now let's look at a specific documentation scenario and um, specifically looking at the technical writer's context. One of my first projects when I started working at Amazon was to document Fire App Builder, which is a, a Java-based Android framework for building apps for Fire TV. You know, the streaming media player that you plug into your TV. Well, how do you build an app for that, that platform? Uh, that's what I was focused on, and that's what this Fire App Builder toolkit allows you to do. So at first glance, it seems like, hey, my task was just to create documentation for users. So I buried my head in the, in the months to come, writing documentation. I implemented best practices for information design. You know, and at the end of the day, I had created documentation for the release. But in publishing the docs, I was short-sighted to think that I had reached my goal. My goal was never to create documentation for Fire App Builder. My goal was to create more Fire App Builder apps in the App Store, which would in turn in increase selection of apps in the App Store. You know, more apps means more selection, happier customers. When I stop to analyze whether I achieve the end purpose of my craft, it raises some questions. Well, yes, we do have many Fire App Builder apps in the App Store, the number wasn't nearly the count that I had anticipated while writing the documentation. Uh, the first year saw approximately 75 apps on board with Fire App Builder, uh, but in my mind I had the idea that thousands of apps would be using uh, Fire App Builder. So why did we see dozens instead of thousands of adoptions? I should pause here to simply acknowledge the complexity of looking at end goals. You might say, Tom, you're still looking too short-sighted. Your goal isn't to increase the number of Fire App Builder apps in the App Store or to expand the App Store selection for customers. Uh, your goal is to increase the market share of Fire TV in the streaming media market, turning this flywheel in your corporation. And that goal, uh, you know, increasing market share of Fire TV, that goal is to strengthen the Amazon ecosystem of products that interact with each other. And that goal or that work is designed to further this original goal of creating an everything store where every conceivable thing is available at your fingertips. And that end goal is dot, 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 and so on. Okay, so I think when you look too far down the end goals, it gets to be too far reaching. The connection to these further goals is just, just too tenuous. So many other efforts and causes influence, influence the larger end of simply increasing market share of Fire TV. I mean, think about all the efforts around acquiring media content, designing the user interface, uh, the supporting products, the ecosystem of voice, 
it's hard to measure success in this larger end because there are simply hundreds of causes for that larger effect. And this documentation is just one tiny cause. So let's restrict the end goal of writing this documentation to just one level beyond merely producing the documentation. Uh, let's include this end of increasing the number of Fire App Builder apps in the App Store. So with this end in mind, when I'm writing a topic on how to configure the manifest file in Fire App Builder or something, it might appear that my task is to explain the min SDK version settings to users. But this is really like looking at a, at a leaf or branch in front of my face instead of at the forest. My real task involves increasing the number of Fire App Builder apps in the App Store. When we analyze whether our documentation was successful, we have to ask, did it achieve this actionable end? Why did some users adopt it while other users rejected it? Um, and this gets to the heart of the craft and the purpose for which we're simplifying complexity. This is rhetoric applied to the workplace. Why did people not do what I hoped they would do from the language and words I created? Why did the discourse in my docs not motivate action? And now that we're in the realm of rhetoric and motives and action, we can start to analyze the situation from a better perspective. In the next section, uh, I'm going to explore what drives action on a deeper level. The stories we push about our products versus the stories that users believe. So before we move into some more uh, concrete examples, I want to dive into what scholars have to say about story and narrative so that we can build a theoretical foundation to ground our analysis. Um, to push users towards some end goal, we form a story around our product that serves the purpose of persuading them to take action towards our product. And whether they initiate this action that we want or not depends on how our product story aligns with their story. Michael Drought, an English professor at Wheaton College, argues that, quote, story channels our intuition and lets us understand how things work. The structure of argument is finding ways to tell stories about the things you want to talk about." End quote. In other words, stories form this organizing conceptual framework that determines our understanding and our actions. Um, although most of the foundations for humanities tend to align with rhetorical theory, and you know, you're probably familiar with the focus on logos, pathos, e ethos, uh, another theory called narrative paradigm theory proposed by 20th century communications scholar Walter Fisher argues for a different approach in his narrative paradigm. Rather than grounding decision-making and evaluation in logic, one looks at stories as the underlying fabric of society. Looking through Fisher's narrative paradigm lens, we might ask, what really factors into our sense-making of the world around us? Do we arrive at our sense of the world through careful analysis of logic by analyzing the soundness of reasoning and evidence behind well-ordered arguments? Or do we make sense of the world 
uh, around us through stories, the stories we hear, and the stories we tell ourselves. Scholars in the psychology discipline, they also say story is foundational to sense-making in the world. Uh, in, our, in an article called Stories from the Secret City, Race, Smith's Art of Narrative as Rhetoric, Russell Hurst, a TechCom scholar, presents the cognitive psychology view on story. Uh, quoting from Russell, he says, Cognitive psychologists tell us that hearing and reading stories is a major way in which humans make sense of the world and position themselves in it. We also listen to our own internal narratives about our lived experience over and over. In our conscious and unconscious minds, we weave stories together into a conceptual fabric. This ever-expanding tapestry forms, in large measure, our worldview. It thus profoundly influences a host of our cognitive functions, such as our cause and effect thinking. Of course, it is not stories alone that weave this tapestry. We also read statistics, hear reasoned arguments, look at scientific facts, etc. But stories loom large in our psyches and influence our thinking and behavior in deep ways. This fact has inspired the recent swell of interest in narrative theory in many fields, including literature, sociology, psychology, public relations, management, rhetoric, and technical communication. End quote. So if stories are the, the conceptual fabric that profoundly influences the way we see and experience the world, aren't these stories worth examining on a deeper level? Another scholar, Tracy Bridgeford, draws upon psychologist Jerome Bruner to explain that stories provide a frame through which we make sense of the world. Bridgeford writes, quote, Narrative frames, Bruner says, provide a means of constructing the world, of characterizing its flow, and of segmenting events within that world, without which we'd be lost in a murk of chaotic experiences. Human beings, he says, do not deal with the world event by event or with text sentence by sentence. They frame events and sentences in larger structures. End quote. And those larger structures... Uh, are the narrative frames or stories that ground how we see and interpret the world. Now, my favorite metaphor for looking at story is to compare it to gravity. In another book, What's Your Story? Storytelling to Move Markets, Audiences, People, and Brands, uh, two other writers, Ryan Matthews and Watts Wacker, say stories are, quote, a force as powerful and universal as gravity and sadly, often almost as invisible to the people it impacts, end quote. Gravity works as a good analogy for the power of story because gravity itself is invisible. You don't see it, yet gravity influences the orbital paths and trajectories of nearly everything around us, everything we see. Um, in Einstein's general theory of relativity, gravity bends space and time. You may have seen these images where you have a sphere sitting on this mesh grid and instead of a flat grid it's like a, a ball on a, on a blanket that bends it down and that ball is kind of like the story um, there's also been a great deal written both in mainstream media and academic journals about 
corporate narratives, um, especially origin stories and even CEO stories. For example, there's an article called Strategic Application of Storytelling in Organizations by Randolph Barker and Kim Gower, and they use the narrative paradigm theory that I discussed earlier as the foundation for their, quote, storytelling model of organizational communication. They basically argue that, quote, storytelling is an effective way to communicate in this corporate environment to arrive at an enhanced organizational communication and performance, end quote. In other words, uh, if you use story, you just communicate a lot better. <laughs> you can help people cohere around values in an organization much more efficiently than without it. Um, despite this attention to story in these academic journals, uh, it seems that scholars rarely relate storytelling and story to technical documentation. Even though, as Richard Rabble, a tech com practitioner uh, who I follow, follow in the blogosphere, he points out that technology, quote, technology is not an intrinsically neutral or benevolent force. You know, it's been used to accomplish wonders and perpetuate horrors, end quote. So my goal in this article, and of course, Richard's not necessarily just talking about documentation there. <laughs> Hopefully we're not perpetrating horrors and documentation, although uh, that's probably the case in a great number of manuals on an internal psychological level for some users. But my goal in this article is really to highlight the technical documentation scenario that technical writers are typically working in and how story relates to that scenario. So I've been talking a lot about story, but I haven't really defined it. Uh, what is story? What do we mean when we say this? How does that differ from narrative? Well, stories, in my view, are the arguments we believe. Whether they're fallacious or sound, backed by valid reasoning or not. You know, some people use the term um, story rather than narrative because story encapsula encapsulates the overall significance and the meaning of the events, whereas narrative tends to refer more to the sequence of events taking place. Um, others just seem to use these terms interchangeably. Of course, if you work in an agile uh, context in, in the workplace, user story uh, is a term frequently used. When gathering requirements, the product, product manager collects user stories that function as the requirements or requested features written from a user's perspective. For example, a user story might be, I want to be able to add a widget to my web page. Uh, a typical product might have 10 to 20 user stories that the team works on. Now, these agile user stories, they're not the kind of story that I'm talking about. They're more like user requirements or user features. Um, so I'm kind of tempted to use the term user narrative, but if narrative refers more to sequence and order of plot and events, it's not quite the right term either. At any rate, uh, perhaps using the term user stories will connect more with the product manager's lingo and provide more immediate relevance, even if the usage refers to a larger meaning. All right, now let's get into some more examples. Um, the invisible stories that drive our actions and thoughts, they're not always apparent. Identifying them requires some, some insight 
a sense of clairvoyance, um, but identifying these stories that then play out in the narratives of our lives will help us understand better why people adopt or reject the products that we're documenting. Let's unpack the idea that stories drive action a bit more with, uh, with some concrete examples. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times, David Brooks, the columnist, asks, what is the democratic story? That's the title of his article. And it's the central question in his piece. Um, in other words, what story are Democrats telling in order to bring people to their side? Brooks starts by describing the story that Republicans were telling about their candidate. Brooks says, quote, The story Donald Trump tells is that is that we good-hearted, decent people of middle America have been betrayed by stupid elites who screw us and uh, who screw us and have been threatened by foreigners who are out to get us. And that story resonated with people. You can get a lot of facts wrong if you get your story right, Brooks says. Brooks then asks what story the Democrats are going to tell to persuade others against the Trump story. Brooks says, quote, today Democrats tell two other stories. The first is the traditional socialist story associated with Bernie Sanders. America is rivaled by class conflict. The bankers and the oligarchs are exploiting the middles. We need a fighter who will go out and battle concentrated economic power. The second story is the multicultural story. America history has been marked by systems of oppression. Those who have been oppressed, women, African, African Americans, Latinos, need to stand together and fight for justice, end quote. Brooks identifies these larger stories that are driving people forward and influencing their actions, even if, uh, you know, these people are unaware of these stories. They're operating at a deeper unconscious level. Now, what Brooks fails to ask, in my opinion, is what is the people's story? And how does the people's story, the individual person's story, match up with either the Democratic or Republican story? You know, people aren't an empty sponge absorbing whatever story someone tries to tell them. Rather, they're driven by their own stories, which usually center more closely on their own interests. Before diving too far into product versus user stories, let's pause here to let these ideas sink in a bit applying them to you and me right here. I have a story and you have a story. On this blog, my story is that I'm a technical writer in the trenches. I'm not a bystanding academic or a consultant at a distance. I'm knee deep in the real work of documentation. And as such, I can relate to other technical writers. My entrenchment in the workplace gives me unparalleled insight in my blog posts to make my assertions and reflections real, relevant, and rooted in experience. Now, whether this is true or not is beside the point. This story guides and shapes my perspective. And I think it helps align readers with me because they sort of perceive me as a virtual colleague. And what's your story? In the context of you reading this blog, your story is that you want to keep updated with the latest trends and happenings in the field. You know you need to stay current, and so reading TechCom blogs and other websites serves as a form of continuing education. It's a way to help uh, keep your pulse on the information, techniques, and other news that you need to keep aware and up-to-date. 
you feel that reading here and participating in comments and other discussions aligns with the same purposes for which you might attend a TechCom event, to interact with like-minded colleagues, to participate in the ongoing conversation as part of the curious, ever-learning body of technical communicators. At least that's the story that I'm projecting onto my imagined audience. All right, so we talked a little bit about these larger political stories, but let's now move into the technical writer's workspace and articulate some stories to bring this concept to life. Let's make use of this story framework with docs. Um, and in order to do that, we need to identify two types of stories, product stories and user stories. Then we assess how the two stories align, particularly in regards to documentation. I'm going to look at three examples to make these efforts clear. And I'm going to use three products within my own work context because I'm most familiar with them. And also articulating these stories will be useful to me. Example one. In the case of Fire App Builder, uh, which I described earlier, the product story was this. While many developers are familiar with building Android apps for mobile phones and tablets, TV uh, introduces another form factor with many new elements and considerations that are simply unfamiliar to most developers. Fire App Builder gives developers a ready-made TV project to create a TV app using the same Android tools they used to build phone and tablet apps. A more succinct way of saying this is TV apps are hard to build. Here's a sample TV toolkit to make it easier. So why didn't Fire App Builder's easy toolkit lead to a massive outpouring of TV app development? Well, maybe the product story didn't quite fit with the user story. Now, certainly there isn't just one user story, but what would some of these user stories be? Here's one possible user story. I want the most platform coverage for my app, pushing it to Android TV and Fire TV and more. So I'm starting with a Google template instead of an Amazon template because Android TV has more market share than Fire TV. So presumably this Google template will have wider compatibility with all the other Android TV platforms. Using the Google template, my coverage will be greater and the app will still probably work on Fire TV. All right, so in this light, the story about a template being easy, which was the initial product story for Fire App Builder, uh, doesn't quite match up with the user story about alignment with the most widespread Android platform. Um, and if this is the case, if these user stories are really what's happening in users' heads. In the documentation, uh, it could steer more towards arguments that compare and contrast strategies of starting with Google's template, the Android Leanback library, uh, versus starting with the Fire App Builder template. The documentation, which by the way also uh, builds on this Leanback library, the documentation could emphasize the fact that Fire App Builder uh, produces a valid app for Google Play as well. Um, the, the documentation needs to look closely at maybe the Google services available on Google Play that aren't compatible with the services on the App Store, the Amazon App Store, and explain what to use instead or how these two can work in a more fluid way. Um, 
one classic example is in-app billing versus in-app purchasing different services that people use to uh, charge for items in their app. So the incompatibility of these services might be driving developers away. And by focusing on how to kind of fix that incompatibility of services, it could uh, alleviate this tension between the competing platforms. So anyway, these stories, they obviously would need to be tested with users to see if the story actually aligns with their thinking. I'm just guessing here. And certainly, um, some confirmation is needed that can only be achieved through outreach efforts. What I'm trying to demonstrate here is thinking along this larger trajectory. All right, let's go to another example. Uh, example two. Now, this is more of a feature than a product, but let's look at voice enablement of Fire TV. Um, this is currently a major initiative in our group to encourage developers to voice enable their app and their content. In the product story, um, by the way, by voice enablement, we say rather than using your remote to control like fast forward, rewind, play, pause, or even just you know typing a search to find content, uh, you just you just say that you, you utter it. So the product story is kind of like this: voice interactivity delights customers. It makes it easier for them to find your content and to interact with your app. Instead of having to type out their search using a remote control, which is a tedious process, customers can simply say, for example, play House of Cards. While watching a movie, they can simply simply say, uh, Alexa, pause, as they go to fr their fridge or answer a door. Voice enablement leads to a hands-free TV viewing experience that's simply more enjoyable and convenient. All right, so... Now, what about the user story? And by user, I mean third-party developer, not a customer. So keep that difference in mind. The developer user story might be as follows. My main goal in developing and enhancing my app is to increase, increase lift and engagement for my content. It's going to take six months of development efforts to fully incorporate voice interactivity with my app but there's really no hard data showing a significant lift or increased engagement from voice, at least not yet. It might be more profitable to spend my energy elsewhere, at least in these early stages of voice integration with products. So sure, a lot of these stories that I'm relating here might play out more in the developer marketing realm, but documentation, it's not necessarily a side note here, documentation might appear to be objective and transparent, uh, but think about the way we select and arrange information, what we choose to leave in, what we choose to leave out, what we put in the foreground, what we put in the background, the words we choose. This selection shapes the, doc the documentation into a particular body of information that reflects what our perspectives, agendas, and true goals really are. So to align with the user story here, the documentation could organize voice topics, voice instruction, um, under titles such as increasing app engagement instead of just integrating voice or best practices. The documentation could explain why developers might want to integrate voice, not just how to integrate it. For example, the documentation could note the increased discoverability from voice that could lead to greater content visibility which aligns with what the user wants. The documentation could also place more attention 
on how individual companies can integrate their own metrics to measure engagement and lift of their content. You know, invite developers to do their own analytics pilots to measure value. So see how these the consideration of these larger stories can help shape and influence the direction of documentation. Um, the technical writer isn't just explaining the technical details of how to integrate media session API into an Android project. The technical writer is focused on the user story and aligning the documentation around it. This is essentially what user-centered documentation means, but here we're centering on the user's story. Okay, let's look at one last example here, example number three. We'll look at another product and user story uh, around a different product called Amazon Creator. Amazon Creator is a browser-based solution designed for content creators rather than developers, and it allows them to create a Fire TV app from a YouTube channel or MRSS feed within a matter of minutes. So the product story for Amazon Creator is kind of like this. You can create a Fire TV app in minutes using a simple web tool that doesn't require any coding at all. You've already published your video content on YouTube, so why not bother to spend a few minutes building a Fire TV app to distribute your content onto another channel, expanding your audience to include the millions of Fire TV customers as well. Uh, now, in writing the documentation for Amazon Creator, again, I felt that upon release, we would see thousands of Fire TV apps, you know, almost one for every YouTube channel. Who wouldn't want to do this? Yet once again, um, rates of adoption didn't match up with expectations. So what happened? In this case, the documentation was really clear and easy to follow. Um, in fact, the product itself probably didn't even need documentation. So what happened to the thousands of Amazon Creator apps? Why didn't users feel more persuaded to create Amazon Creator apps from their YouTube channels? Well, the user story might not have been related to ease of building the app at all. Perhaps users told themselves this story. Our viewers already know how to find us on YouTube, and Fire TV viewers can easily access YouTube through the Firefox or Silk app on Fire TV. There's no benefit to having our own separate app, especially if the video views in the app won't count in the YouTube analytics. We want the views, feedback, comments, and other analytics more squarely centered on our main distribution channel in YouTube rather than fragmented into other channels. All right, so in this case, instead of focusing on the ease of use for building an Amazon Creator app, what the documentation could do instead is address the questions about analytics more directly, providing guidelines about the unique perspective that users would gain by looking at anal analytics through Amazon's metrics. Um, this alternative view can provide better segmenting of audiences, leading to more detailed understanding about the viewing habits, and locations, and devices. Uh, they're not just lumped together into one analytics bucket, but you have much more detail about who's viewing your app where and how and why. All right, so let's conclude uh, this this project here. Um, although this has mostly been an exercise in thought, and I could be wrong in many of the details above in my examples, um, 
But my point is that each of these stories, they need to be articulated more clearly through the product and documentation teams. Uh, too often, both the product and the doc teams don't fully understand what story they're telling to users and why. The, they easily fall prey to the, quote, hey, it's so easy user story. But ease of use isn't always compelling enough to motivate adoption. And many times products don't articulate their story at all. Without a clear story, documentation focuses on features instead of user needs and concerns. And when this happens, there's no North Star to steer the ship of documentation. And consequently, the topics just don't resonate with users. At some level, you have to find common ground or purpose across product and user stories. In the Harvard Business Review, Mark Bonchek explains, quote, the cornerstone of a strategic narrative is a shared purpose. The shared purpose is the outcome that you and your customer are working together toward. It's more than just a value proposition of what you deliver to them or a mission of what you do for the world. It's the journey that you are on with them. By having a shared purpose, the relationship shifts from consumer to co-creator, end quote. As you try to align the product story with the user story, look for these areas of shared interest to align the two stories. At the end of the day, don't just sit back and think, what great documentation I've created. Instead, keep the focus on the real end game, product adoption. Our job is not to just document widgets. It's to encourage the use and implementation of widgets in, in the user experience. By articulating product and end user stories, we can adjust the product stories to be more in tune with the user's story. And learning to see these stories is difficult and there might be multiple stories for different users and multiple stories within the same product. But learning to see these stories and their lack of alignment allows us to understand why our documentation achieves or fails its true end. All right, that is the end. Thanks again for listening. Again, this post was titled Articulating the Invisible Stories that Influence Product Adoption or Rejection. I'm Tom Johnson. My blog is idratherbewriting.com. If you want to read more topics about simplifying complexity, go to my site, idratherbewriting.com, and uh, go to slash simplifying-complexity, or just click complexity on the top nav bar. If you want to provide feedback, of course, you can do so in the comments. You can write me an email, tom at idratherbewriting.com. You can share the post, review it, tweet it, uh, like it, whatever. Uh, always welcome any kind of feedback. And um, if you have an idea that you think I you want to hear me write about, especially if it fits into this framework of how we simplify complexity, by all means, let me know.